Hi, I'm Renee. Hi, I'm Sam. And And this this is Laboratory Podcast. Well then, let us, pickles and tomatoes, begin. Yeah. Welcome to Laboratory Podcast. Exploring the human side of science. With recorded interviews of emeritus and retired scientists on the evolution and history of scientific research throughout their careers. Welcome back to Laboratory Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hope this week is treating you well. We are currently nearing the end of July. Somewhere around the end of July. We're in Mm -hmm. close to the 20s. And we are continuing with some of our deep dives into scientists before we continue with our Zoom interviews. Yes. So if you, again, would like to be interviewed and consider yourself savvy with Zoom, or if you don't consider yourself savvy, uh, we can help direct you. But if you'd like to be interviewed, we're still looking for some live interviewees. And until then, we'll keep doing deep dives into often unsung scientists. Yeah. Any other updates before we begin? Life's still being quarantined and change is still happening. And yeah, that's about it. I would say keep on being safe, everybody. If you're going to protests, mask up. Um, And... Uh, or if you're like going to the grocery store, masks. Oh yeah, up. yeah. Please, please put on your mask. If you're going anywhere, the the more you wear your masks now, the less you'll have to wear your masks later. <laughs> I think that's a good benefit. <laughs> and also, I mean, shout out to um, everyone who is standing up for what they believe in, um, especially those in Portland recently who had some kerfuffles with the federal federal troops that came in. Please stay safe. I just want everyone to stay safe. I have some good friends in Portland, so I just hope everyone is staying as safe as they can, please. But I really um, admire everyone who is standing up for all of these things that we need to change. Agreed. And with that, let's get into it, shall we? So I started the other time. Renee, I get to lead us off. So... Today, I am going to be talking about Gladys West. Ooh, Gladys. And the places that I got my sources are uh, MassiveSci.com, it was from a Cosmos magazine, BBC, Afrotech, BlackDoctor.org, um, and there was a Air Force biography as well that I used, and Wikipedia. And... As a little prelude, her story has been very unknown until recently. And this happened when her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, was hosting an event to honor members, and she wrote a short biography. And in that biography, she included one line about how she was part of the team that developed the GPS. Her bio included one line about how she was part of the team that developed the GPS, And it caught the eye of one of her sorority sisters, who was then determined to share her story. And knowing that, we're going to go into her biography now and circle back to that occurrence later. So, 
Gladys was born in 1930 as Gladys May Brown in Sutherland, Virginia, in Dinwiddie County. And there is an interview that she seems to have done for the BBC, and so there's going to be a lot of quotes of hers in this story today. So as she put it, Dinwiddie County is, quote, a real rural kind of place. And many families there were sharecroppers, and her family had their small farm where she worked in the fields with them. Her mother worked at a tobacco company, and her father worked at the railroad. However, Gladys was ambitious, and early in her life, she realized that she didn't want to work on a farm or in a factory for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. So what she said was, I quote, I thought at first I needed to go to the city. I thought that would get me out of the country and out of the fields. But then as I got more educated, went into the higher grades, I learned that education was the thing to get me out. And that's exactly what she did. So at her high school, the top two graduates received full-ride scholarships to Virginia State College, which is now Virginia State University. And due to her family's financial hardships, she knew that this was her chance at a higher education. She worked hard in high school. She was named the valedictorian in 1948, and she received one of those two scholarships. Entering college, she was unsure about what subject she wanted to major in. And, quote, they were trying to tell me, since I was good at all of my subjects, that I should major in science or math or something that was more difficult that meant people didn't major in it. Good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great plan. I get So she decided on mathematics, about which she said, you felt a bit different. You didn't quite fit in as you did in home economics. You're always competing and trying to survive because you're in a different group of people. This is because she was in a very male-dominated field. And the few female classmates she had pursued teaching upon graduation. As they did back then. Which is a great profession to have gone into, but that wasn't quite what Gladys wanted to do. So in 1952, she graduated with her Bachelor of Science in Mathematics. And she taught math and science for two years in Waverly, Virginia. But as I said, she decided teaching wasn't for her. She decided to return to VSU and pursue her master's in mathematics, graduating in 1955. In 1956, Gladys was hired as a mathematician at the Naval Proving Ground in Dahlgren, Virginia, which is now known as the Naval Surface Warfare Center. She was one of only four African-American employees at the time. And she was the second woman ever hired. Wow. Yes. That is some substantial stuff. Yes. Good for her. And she started as a calculator, which is somebody who does the math by longhand. So she started as a calculator doing the math longhand and then transitioned to programming computers. Did she become a computer? <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> she worked with the Naval Ordnance Research Calculator to verify calculations for range tables associated with Navy weapon systems. And Gladys described working as a computer like this. We would come in and sit at our desks and we would logic away. 
go through all the steps anyone would have to do to solve the mathematical problem. The operators would call us to tell us our program was running now, and we would come down and watch it. So we'd come down and watch this big computer churn away. Then you'd get some results. Nine times out of 10, they weren't completely right, so you had to analyze them and find out what was different to what you expected. I don't know if my brain can wrap around <laughs> all of that. So that was a good snapshot as to what being a computer and a calculator was back in the day of doing a lot of this math longhand, doing what you expected, creating these computer codes, running it on these large computers with not much user interface like we have nowadays, getting a wrong result and figuring out where you went wrong. I have to admit, I'm going to pull my millennial card right here. It wasn't until the movie Hidden Figures came out that I realized someone could be a computer, one who computes. And I always mm -hmm. thought that a computer <laughs> was a, just a piece of technology. I will fully I'm sure admit you're not that. the only one. <laughs> sure, you're not the only one. And that's why it's great seeing that you were a computer. Fascinating. So we're going to pause for a second on her career and just talk about how in 1957, a year after she was hired there, she married one of the other African-American employees, Ira West. And some social context for the time, there's the late 1950s, early 1960s, and the civil rights movement was becoming more mainstream in the U.S. It was brewing. Oh, yes. And here are her comments on this. It turned out to be somewhat separate for us because we were working with the government and we couldn't do a whole lot of participating in non-government activities off base. We lived on the base and we didn't communicate too well with the community that was around us. We didn't get involved with it partially because it wasn't safe because of the job to do that. Understandable. Understandable, you your you're job. working for the government, you're one of four African-American employees working on these large government projects, living on base, makes sense. And I'm sure her heart was there as well. Yes, definitely. Movement. So in the 1960s, 1962 to be exact, she joined the Scientific Programming and Analysis Branch in the Computation Division at Dahlgren, where she was a member of the five-person team that programmed the NORC, the Naval Ordnance Research Calculator, which we discussed earlier as well, for Project 29V. And this was the award-winning astronomical study that proved the regularity of Pluto's motion relative to Neptune. Great. <laughs> and so this is where every two orbits that Pluto makes, Neptune makes three. So being a non-scientist, I'm going to assume that that solidified our understanding of where it was in space it made us understand a lot of things i'm assuming yes um but it was understanding the relation of these two planets the gravitational pull between the two of them and how other factors came into play as well i didn't go i could have gone much deeper into the science behind pluto and neptune but i did not because she moves on to other work and if you're interested in going Deeper, there is the internet. There is, but apparently what this is called is orbital resonance. And this two to three ratio, two orbits for Pluto for every three orbits of Neptune has been the case for millions of years. At least 17 million, I recall. Wow. And this work took over 5 billion 
arithmetic calculations, and 100 hours of computing time. And for this work, the team was awarded the Award of Merit for Group Achievement by the Department of the Navy in 1964. Well-deserved, I'd say. Mm-hmm. After this project, she worked on calculating satellite orbits using the more advanced IBM 7030 computer. Only as big as a school bus. Probably. Employing algorithms to account for variations, including tidal and gravitational forces that distort the Earth's shape. She programmed the computer to provide more and more refined calculations for an accurate geodetic Earth model. So the Earth, it's not really a sphere. It has mountains and caverns and oceans, and oceans have tides with gravity, and then that makes it not shapely. And if you could see my hands, they're going all wibbly-wobbly. And so she was using algorithms to account for all these gravitational forces and tidal forces to look at the variations to be able to really get better at accurately pointing where something is on Earth. Beautiful. And this work, combined with her work that I'm about to explain as well, eventually became the Global Positioning System GPS work. I am very grateful for this work. (laughs) I would have never gotten anywhere, I'll be honest. Maybe a few dead ends. Maybe. Um, While working on this, she also earned a Master's of Arts in Public Administrations in 1973 from the University of Oklahoma. Oh, no big deal. Casually. Yeah. In 1975, Gladys became the project manager for the Geodynamics Experimental Ocean Satellite which theoretically confirmed that satellite radar altimeters could be employed for ocean measurements. So now we're able to do all these calculations with oceans. Where are we? What is happening? And you know from firsthand experience that that is a great feat. Very useful. Yes, please and thank you. In 1978, she was named a project manager for CSAT, S-E-A-S-A-T where she oversaw the development of the first satellite capable of remotely sensing oceans. Before CSAT, the precise measurement of distances over the Earth's surface or between two objects like the Earth and an airplane was nearly impossible. This is because, as I said before, the Earth is not a perfect sphere thanks to the oceans, and understanding the sea level was vital to modeling the planet as a whole. CSAT made this possible, and this work, combined with her satellite analysis over the years, is what led to an accurate mathematical model of the Earth, which is technically a geoid and not a sphere. What's a geoid? Not a sphere. All right. (laughs) This is the backbone of GPS, since you need a mathematical model to determine the position of a receiver. I'm vaguely understanding this. Vaguely understanding. You can't just have a receiver. You need coordinates you put into a algorithm or information you put into an algorithm to get back where you are. Okay. The numbers don't just magically appear. Right. right. Not like a grid under the earth that we stand on and it like knows where you are. Oh, there isn't? There's not. There's satellites and they can calculate where you are, but they need to know more information. I see. I get it. And that's why your receiver is your phone or whatever GPS device you have. Correct. Got it. So taking all this information into account, the sea level, the shape of the Earth, all of that is vital to be able to know where exactly you are on the Earth from these satellites that are out in space. So much more goes into these GPS 
and TomTom Tom would let you know. More goes into it than just like plug in my home address and take me home, Google. Thank you. Thanks, Gladys. In 1986, Gladys published Data Processing System Specification for the Geosat Satellite Radar Autometer, which was a guide on how to increase the accuracy of estimation of geoid heights, the shape of the Earth, if other forces were absent, and vertical deflection, which is how much the gravity is shifted on Earth in that exact location due to geographic anomalies. So geoid heights being like, there's a mountain here, or there's no mountain here. Tides and forces don't change that. There is or there is not. The vertical deflection is the fact that due to these geographic anomalies, your gravity is shifted a bit based on where you are and where you're located on Earth. And so you have to take that into account as well. All of the imperfections of this planet. All of the imperfections. I know that in like physics, you always are taught assuming a perfect model, like a perfect ball, and there is no wind and no this. And like in a perfect system, this is how this works. But guys, the Earth is far from a perfect system. What? So this is going beyond your basic, like this is ideal and this is now reality. If the earth can be imperfect, you too can be imperfect. (laughs) And it's okay. Wise words from Sam. Thank you. In 1998, Gladys retired after a 42-year career at Dahlgren. At this point, she and her husband, Ira, had raised three children and seven grandchildren. Her and Ira traveled, and Gladys decided to return to education and pursue her PhD in public administration. Unfortunately, she suffered a stroke five months after her retirement, which affected her hearing, vision, balance, and mobility. But this is what she said about that. And I quote, All of a sudden, these words came into my head. You can't stay in the bed. You got to get up from here and get your PhD. Hell yeah. Yeah. So in 2018, when she was 88 years old, she finished her PhD from Virginia Tech. All I think is that those words should be right up there with RuPaul's You Better Work. Get up out of that bed and, and get make it your happen. PhD. Make it happen. And it was around this time in 2018 that the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority that she was a member of when she was in college, there was an event happening where she wrote her short biography, and from there her accomplishments have been brought forth into the spotlight. In February 2018, she was commended for her trailblazing career in mathematics and vital contributions to modern technology by the Virginia State Senate. On December 6, 2018, she was inducted into the United States Air Force Hall of Fame, which is one of the highest honors the Air Force Space Command. Captain Godfrey Weeks, who was the commanding officer of Dahlgren in 2018, said this of Gladys. She rose through the ranks, worked on the satellite geodesy and contributed to the accuracy of GPS and the measurement of satellite data. As Gladys West started her career as a mathematician at Dahlgren in 1956, she likely had no idea that her work would impact the world for decades to come. And in response, Gladys agreed, saying, when you're working every day, you're not thinking what impact is this going to have on the world? You're thinking, I've got to get this right. I think that too. 
Yeah. She seems to be very much somebody who just put her head down and worked and did her job and made things happen. Usually those are the best types of workers, huh? Mm -hmm. Also in 2018, she was selected by the BBC as their 100 Women of 2018. And she was awarded the Female Alumna of the Year Award at the Historically Black Colleges and Universities Awards. Nice. True to her roots, she still prefers using a paper map for her own calculations over GPS technology. Totally understandable. And as a final note, on becoming a role model for other women, this is what she has to say. I think I did help. We have made a lot of progress since when I came in. Because now at least you can talk about things and be a little more open. Before you sort of whispered and looked at each other or something. But now the world is opening up a little bit and making it easier for a woman. But they still got to fight. Yes, we do. So that is Gladys West. And I thought it was so fascinating how her story really wasn't out there until there was a sorority event. And she wrote this biography and one of the sorority sisters was captivated by it and felt the need to share it and make it well known and I think that there's something really nice about that in the sense of that community bonding of recognizing what others have done around you and boosting them up but also the fact that it took until 2018 when she was 88 years old to recognize her 42 years of work is mind-boggling I think she I mean doesn't sound like a very I don't know what the correct word is. She sounds like a very humble person. Completely. Too, and seems to be totally motivated by her work and entranced and um, just wanting to do it for the pure love of or pure passion of what she was doing. Yeah. I I often, I mean, as an artist, you hear um, this refrain of like, don't do it for the fame. Don't do it for the accolades. They will come. But if you really like devote yourself to your passion, that's when everything will fall in line. Exactly. And that's totally what happened here. And that's nice to see. It's just, you wish that you learn more about the work that is going on and how these things get created. And I would put money out there to say that there's not one person in the world who has not used something using GPS information. Oh, absolutely. It is such a commonplace thing that you, I never really thought about where it came from or how it was developed and what it really took to be able to get Google to tell me the best way to get from place A to place B and that there's construction workers there and now the best way is from this place to this place. And I think that that's fascinating that is something you use on such a daily basis with no connection as to where it began. Right. I definitely have taken it for granted <laughs> that this thing exists now and I'm able to use it for my benefit. But mm -hmm. before we had paper maps mm -hmm. and we had to chart our own coordinates. Mm -hmm. And now the ease with which we can get from point A to point B is astonishing. And yeah, I agree. I wish we could learn a little bit more about the human power that is behind all of all of these great things. Yeah. So that was Gladys West. Beautiful. And now it is time for Sam's story. Okay. So I did a doctor of health, Dr. Antonia Novello. And bear with me if I pronounce anything wrong. Because um, I pronounced everything perfectly. I will do my best. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Antonia 
She was pretty phenomenal. She, uh, just to give like a little upfront, so Dr. Antonia Novello was the first woman and the first Hispanic person to become Surgeon General of the United States. She made a huge impact on American public health through her work at the National Institutes of Health and was uh, especially impactful as Surgeon General. Her most significant contributions were in setting guidelines for organ transplantations and uh, in leading a campaign against tobacco companies who targeted children in cigarette ads. She also raised public awareness about AIDS and its spread among women and children. And she was really um, impactful at improving general health care for women, children, Hispanics, and other minorities. Well, that's quite a uh, litany of nice things. summary there, yeah. Right? All right. So to begin, Antonia Novello was born on August 23rd, 1944 in Fajardo, Puerto Rico. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's Fajardo because Fajardo just sounds like a white person. Uh, so this was a town 32 miles southeast of San Juan. Uh, her parents were divorced or would become divorced and her father now I got two different things saying her father died when she was four and then her father died when she was eight but either well, way she was young like her father passed uh, away and her mother was, was a high school principal in a distant town and was usually home only on weekends Antonia suffered throughout her childhood from a congenital megacolon which is an abnormality of the large intestine and it could only be corrected with surgery but since she came from a poor family, they could not afford the trip to the surgical hospital. And she spent part of every summer getting interim treatment from a local hospital. So not fully correcting her condition. So it seems like there is some motivation early on in her life to go pursue the medical field. Oh, yes. Got it. Uh, though her chronic health problem limited her childhood activity and sapped her energy uh, and also required long periods of hospitalization. By the time she was a teenager, she had decided to be a doctor and wanted to, like you said, pursue better health care. Uh, so, so she decided on this path so she could help other sick children. And in a quote through the Saturday Evening Post, she says, I do believe some people fall through the cracks. I was one of those. I thought, when I grow up, no other person is going to wait 18 years for surgery. So uh, she had a surgery when she was 18 to correct her condition. Um, that surgery didn't really go very well, and she had another surgery when she was 20 that ended up being the be-all end-all. And like I said, despite her condition, she was a well-adjusted kid. She had a great sense of humor, um, very passionate, and also was active in school activities. And since her mother stressed the importance of an education and personally taught her math and science, Antonia observed in a Hall of Public Service interview uh, from June 18th, 1994, that she, quote, went through a hospital system of care that was not very keen in a disease state that makes you realize that there are good people and bad people in medicine. With a mother who said, I'm not going to let your disease be used for you not to succeed. So her mother didn't let her get away she wasn't going to be using that disease as an excuse not to be successful. Exactly. So she pursued this passion of uh, getting better and getting uh, an education. She was such an outstanding student that she was able to get a scholarship to study at the University of Puerto Rico at the ripe age of 15. 
Antonia earned her MD degree from the University of Puerto Rico, and while she was in school, she met and married Joseph Novello, a U.S. Navy doctor. And also, sadly, while in medical school, uh, her favorite aunt died of kidney failure during her first year. So she resolved to learn more about the disease and the factors that decide who receives a kidney transplant. She later completed her medical training in nephrology, the study of the kidneys, uh, at the University of Michigan, where she was the first woman to be named Intern of the Year. (laughs) Novella gained experience in pediatrics in Michigan until 1974, and after postgraduate work at Georgetown University uh, and several years in private practice, she joined the U.S. Public Health Service Commission course in 1978, working for the National Institute of Arthritis, Metabolism, and Digestive Disorders at the National Institutes of Health. She became deputy director of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, where she focused on pediatric AIDS. Makes sense. She continued to work in pediatrics at Georgetown University Hospital, and in 1982, she earned her degree in public health from Johns Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health. So she was on a trajectory. So she got her doctorate as well as her master's in public health? So my sources say. Okay. Yes. And again, if you are looking for more information and I don't make it clear here, there's always the internet. On assignment with the U.S. Senate Committee on Labor and Human Resources, Novello helped draft legislation for the Organ Transplantation Procurement Act of 1984. All right, and what was included in that? I don't know. Okay. I didn't go into details. That's just another... It did something for organ transplant, I'm assuming? I think so. I mean, she was interested in who gets uh, organs and donations and how all of these um, things factor in. And probably since she had her own experience in the hospital, she wanted to make sure she was one of the good people. What did it do? (laughs) You have, you pulled it up. I pulled it up. So to address the nation's critical organ donation shortage and improve the organ matching and placement process, the U.S. Congress passed the National Organ Transplant Act in 1984. The act established the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network to maintain a national registry for organ matching. That sounds huge. I'm sorry I did not have more information on <laughs> this huge thing. That seems quite important, yes. Very important. <laughs> Everyone who needs an organ now will benefit from this. This act also called for the network to be operated by a private nonprofit organization under federal contract. The United Network for Organ Sharing, UNOS, which I've heard that term before. I have not. Ba- I've watched TV shows. <laughs> Based in Richmond, Virginia, administers the OPTN, the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, under contract with the Health Resources and Services Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So it's creating the nonprofit organization under federal contract so that there is one registry and information of organs. That sounds better than a lot of different registries. Yes. Cohesiveness. Yes. (laughs) 
one database with lots of information. Well, this is one of the many feathers <laughs> in Antonius. I am sure. Dr. Antonius. I am sure. We can proceed. Sorry for interrupting. Of the experience in pediatrics, she says it was emotionally difficult when she was dealing with children who were severely or terminally ill and states, quote, when the pediatrician cries as much as the parents do, then you know it's time to get out. So she had done this work, but it was definitely taking its toll on her. I'd imagine. I would imagine. It must be so sad, especially for young kids. Mm -hmm. But then she would go on uh, to become the Surgeon General. And as Surgeon General, she focused on the health of young people, probably stemming from all of the pain she saw, Mm -hmm. uh, focusing on the health of young people, women, and minorities. She issued reports and spoke out on underage drinking, smoking, drug abuse, AIDS, especially among women and adolescents, childhood immunization, and injury prevention, and improved health care for Hispanics and other minorities. So in this way, she was able to remove herself from being in the more direct emotional um, dealings with a lot of the severe pediatric patients and still able to make the progress and work that she wanted to get done, that she was passionate about, but in more of a um, department head uh, managerial position. Yes, absolutely. Um, And especially, uh, it seemed that she was passionate for speaking up for people that could not be able to speak up for themselves. Which makes total sense based on her past and growing up. And now that she has this knowledge and this experience in various hospitals and various levels, she was able to then provide the knowledge and protection and what she could to those that she wanted to. She's a true champion. One of her most visible and effective campaigns was against the tobacco industry in their advertising aimed at children, especially evident in posters and billboard advertisements that featured the cartoon character Joe Camel. Oh, yes. Do you remember Joe Camel? Oh, yes. Do you remember what you thought when you saw the first cartoon like that? I think that was cool. I thought it was... I think I learned it more as an aftermath of, like, look at how ridiculous this is. Mm. Yeah, same. I think by the time we were young... It uh, was more of a, we are aware that this is stupid and should not have been a thing. Right, but in the 1980s, they were trying to get people hooked on that little cancer stick. Dr. Novello also alerted the nation to the rising incidence of AIDS among women and adolescents. Her 1993 report on AIDS while counseling against promiscuity and drug use also included instructions on using condoms and cleaning intravenous needles. So she wasn't saying don't use these no, things. She was She's saying, just saying be intelligent and safe, and this is how you can be safe, because not necessarily everybody has access to methods to learn about that easily. Right. Which is something that I respect. It's like, let's educate everyone so they can make informed decisions. Education is always the answer and not... Abstinence? Hi- abstinence, hiding education. Abstinence misinfor- of education. That's abstinence what I mean. of knowledge, yes. <laughs> right. If you want to be abstinent, that's fine. That's, but it shouldn't be the only thing you learn yes. in. Agreed. Uh, education especially i don't know what am i saying we're talking about antonio so we're going to fast forward to the gulf war during the gulf war dr novello expedited the federal drug administration approval of vaccines for military personnel for which she was later awarded the legion of merit a military honor by general colin powell after she served as surgeon general dr novello was a special representative 
to the United Nations Children's Fund from 1993 to 1996, where she expanded her efforts to address the health and nutritional needs of women, children, and adolescents to a global scale. From 1996 to 1999, she was a visiting professor of health policy and management at Johns Hopkins School of Health and Hygiene, where she advised on health services for poor communities. To mark the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1998, Novello organized an unprecedented meeting between Surgeon General David Satcher and seven others besides herself who had held the office. She was a true mm-hmm. go-getter. Yeah. Things happen. And creator of community. And then in 1999, Governor George Pataki nominated her to be the Commissioner of Health for the state of New York, where she now heads one of the largest public health agencies in the country. So she's still alive, kicking, doing her thing, speaking up for the unsung, and creating a better world. And I think it's worth the time to research her and learn more about her. I think these are just a few things that I had learned from um, my sources were infoplease.com, encyclopedia.com, and cfmedicine.nim.nih.gov. She sounds like a powerhouse. She truly is. I I mean, I now want to do a deep dive on all of her work um, in the AIDS epidemic, especially sticking up for uh, children and and women. Mm-hmm. Um, being in the gay community, I I have so many thoughts about <laughs> the AIDS pandemic. None that um, are succinctly coming to mind, but I think A, it was horrible. B, mm-hmm. we should have done more work on it. Um, but I think that women and children are often undersung. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are my thoughts. I really appreciate the work of Dr. Antonia Novello. I think that it's a nice way to see the various paths that you can take and realizing that though you might have worked for being a pediatric surgeon or in a certain field of medicine, knowing where else it can take you and how else you can address what you want to achieve in the world. And the fact that she got her public health um, degrees and the fact that she went and implemented these for more of the in-charge positions and not on the ground in the hospital doing the work, but from above making changes to make it easier for those to get access and to get knowledge to make changes that can make a wide-reaching effect is very nice to see. I think it harkens back to um, a few interviews that we've had where uh, scientists we've talked to have really touted the work of going into management mm-hmm. and um, I want to say lawmaking, but it's not lawmaking. Well, policy changes. <laughs> policy changes, and that's right. Intelligent policy changes based on science and education and knowledge that society has gained. Right. And it does take a person who is interested in that because that shouldn't be expected of everybody who goes into medicine or everybody who goes into science. You want folks who are so dedicated to doing surgeries and you want folks who are so dedicated to their research that that is what they are going to do. But when you have those who are interested in making larger policy changes and diving into the 
completely different world of medicine and going into the world of policy and government, that is a really great brain to have in the room as somebody who understands both worlds to make better and smarter implementations of policies. Especially when you're sticking up for the underdog, Mm -hmm. people who cannot speak up for themselves. That's what we need. As easily. Well, I feel like I learned so much. Yeah, same. Thank you to Gladys West for the GPS. Mm -hmm. And thank you to Dr. Novello for all of the wonderful work you've done. And for being the first woman and uh, Hispanic person to become the Surgeon General. And thank you to our listeners for listening to us talk about them and share our thoughts on them. Yes, thank you so much. Hey guys, so we are still a new podcast. There'll always be a still a new podcast. For the next foreseeable future. Uh-huh. So if you have any comments, questions, concerns, um, nice things to say. Or not nice things, but say them nicely. Right. Don't be a troll. Don't be mean about it. Please reach out to us. You can email us at laboratorypodcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on Instagram at Laboratory Podcast. You can hit us up on Facebook. Just search Laboratory Podcast. We have a Twitter at Laboratory Pod. No cast. And we have a website at www.laboratory-podcast.com. Reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Hear what you're doing. Are you doing anything scientific these days? Any oral history things these days? If you want to reach out to us and you don't want to use your email, you can fill out the form on our website as well. We have a contact us page. If you want to be interviewed, if you want your friend to be interviewed, if you have a scientist that you look up to that you think that we should view their biography let us know and if you have good sources for us to reach out to if you're unhappy with our reporting at this point and you're like please look at this page it has so many sources for information then tell us that too we would love to hear it we're always looking to expand and learn and we're yeah looking to hear from you if you'd like to get in touch with us also science memes i've noticed that there is a very good lack of science memes that are good so send us that we like fun things. <laughs> Anything else? What's your name? My name is Sam. I'm Renee, and this has been the latest lab notebook entry. Adios!